0: Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes, and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. It's also the first episode in a new mini-series called The Fall of Byzantium. We've heard about the Battle of Manscourt in the last episode. Now we're moving on to the disastrous effect this had on Byzantium. This episode is called Civil War. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers. I also wanted to say that I'll be giving away three copies of this book if you leave a review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes in the next week, i.e. closing date is 20th of June, and then you just need to send an email with the address you want the book sent to to Crusades at gmail.com. I'll randomly select three winners, and I'll send a, a copy in the post, no matter where that is, to the three winners. I strongly recommend the book, obviously, uh, not least since it has lots of maps and pictures. Now, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. Alp Arslan didn't realise he'd captured the Emperor until the day after the Battle of Manzikert, when Romanus was brought before him. He didn't really believe it was him. He had his identity checked with the other Byzantine prisoners. Still distrustful, he asked the peace envoys that he'd sent to Romanus only two days before to confirm it really was him. Once he was sure that the blooded, wounded soldier kneeling before him was the Roman Emperor, he stood up from his throne and walked towards him. Romanus must have expected the worst. The last Byzantine emperor to be captured had been beheaded and his skull made into a drinking cup. But Alp Arslan was no ordinary leader. He stopped in front of Romanus. He told his guards to raise him to his feet. Then, to everyone's astonishment, he offered him his hand in friendship." al chivalrous behaviour towards Romanus counts as one of the most unexpected and extraordinary twists in the story of Mansikert. Like the legend of Romanus's capture by the slave soldier, it was to become legendary across Islam as a symbol of Islamic moral superiority over Christianity. However, there is no doubt that it, it is true, since every single account of Mansikert, both Byzantine and Arab, stresses... Alparslan's extraordinary magnanimity, even Michael Seller submits it grudgingly. His prose shivering with indignation as he recounts Romanus's unexpected escape from death. Quote, the commander-in-chief of the enemy forces, i.e., Alparslan, celebrated his victory with a moderation that was beyond all expectation. Offering his condolences to the captive, he shared his own table with him and treated him as an honoured guest. Alparslan welcomed Romanus like a friend. He said the battle had been too close to call, and that it could easily have gone the other way had he not been let down by his own side. In particular, he admired Romanus' bravery in battle and the honesty with which he spoke to his captor. When he asked Romanus what he would have done had he won the battle and their positions been reversed, Romanus is reputed to have said, quote, if I took you prisoner, I would prepare a dog's collar for you end quote. to which the sultan laughed, quote, but I will not imitate your severity or harshness. End quote. But the truth is that Alp Arslan, astute as ever, had very good reasons to treat Romanus well. First, he wanted Byzantium as, in effect, a vassal state on his northwestern border. Second, although he treated him with great honor and generosity, he did demand some major concessions. To understand Alp Arslan's motives, we need to look more closely at what victory at Manzikert really meant for him. Most importantly, it gave him unparalleled authority over the Turkmen tribes. There were no further Turkmen insurrections during his reign. By contrast, defeat at manzikert would certainly have caused a rapid loss of Turkmen support for the Seljuks and the collapse of his empire. The next most important consequence was the reassertion of his authority over the Baghdad Caliphate and the Sunni Arab world, over which he ruled with pretty fragile control. While this wasn't in doubt before Manzikert defeat would certainly have jeopardised his position in Baghdad just as much as it would have done with the Turkmen. So Alp Arslan was now at the apex of his power. He also knew the battle had genuinely been a close call so he had every reason to thank Allah for victory. It's equally important to understand that Manticat didn't change Al-Parslan's longer-term strategy in the slightest. This remained the extension of Sunni, Seljuk power southwards over the Shiite Fatimids in Syria and ultimately Egypt. Within this context, having Byzantium as in effect a vassal state and its emperor as an obedient servant would be helpful. Although Romanus was treated like royalty, the peace settlement Alparslan forced upon him was far from generous. The Byzantine sources say little about the peace terms that were agreed, but the Arab sources provide more detail, although sometimes conflicting. The essential elements were that Romanus had to surrender the key cities of Mansikirt, Antioch, Edessa, and Hierapolis, effectively stripping away the main line of defence of the Byzantine provinces in Anatolia. Next he had To pay a huge ransom and ongoing tribute. According to one of the most reliable of the Muslim chroniclers, this was originally set at 10 million gold pieces, which Romanus negotiated down to one and a half million on the basis that the Byzantine treasury had been emptied to pay for the war. In addition, an annual tribute of 360,000 dinars was agreed. Finally, a marriage alliance was agreed for the future, preferably once Romanus had a daughter who could be married to Alp Arslan's oldest son. Romanus, in fact, had two existing sons with the empress Eudocia, but uh, he never had a daughter. Nevertheless, however tough the terms, Alparslan was pretty relaxed about enforcing them. It was more important to have Romanus as a vassal than to impoverish and humiliate him. Both men knew that Romanus's own future was uncertain. Therefore, Alparslan kept him in captivity for as short a time as possible. It was only eight days before he sent him back with the other Byzantine prisoners, including Nicephorus Basilakis, who'd been captured before the main battle. Romanus and Alparslan parted as the best of friends, quote, the only assurance the emperor gave him, IE to Al-Paslan, was a strong handshake and then they parted, the sultan releasing him to return to his own empire with many embraces and farewell honors." Romanus' fears about his future, however, proved well-founded. On his way back to Mansikert, he found the town was still held by Byzantine soldiers, but they fled before he arrived, suggesting that they were allied with Andronicus. Honouring his treaty with Alparslan, Romanus handed Mansikert back over to the Seljuks. Then he rode on to Theodosiopolis, where only a month before he'd held his Council of War to decide the objectives of the campaign. He must have reflected on the extraordinary volatility in his fortunes. We know little about what physical condition Romanus was in, but he had certainly been badly wounded in the hand at the Battle of Mancicard, and this must still have been causing him pain. He rested at Theodosiopolis for several days, finding new clothes and armour to replace the Turkish ones he was wearing, while he pondered what to do next. Then deciding to return to Constantinople, he left Theodosiopolis dressed in imperial regalia and marched across northern Anatolia along the shortest route back to the capital city. He gathered what survivors from Mansikert he could find, quote, but he came across very few soldiers who were refugees from the battle, end quote. This is testimony to the slaughter of most of the Cappadocian and Armenian soldiers at the Battle of Manzikert, and now he needed them more than ever. For when he arrived at a hill fault called Melisopatrion, near to Colonia, he learnt that a new emperor had been proclaimed in Constantinople. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this... Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. So let's look at what was happening back in Constantinople. There, no one actually knew what had happened to Romanus after the disaster at Mansikert. The most prevalent view was that he was actually dead, or that if he had been captured, he was as good as dead. Even his great supporter, the senator Michael Ataliates, had given up hope. He fled to Trebizond on the Black Sea coast, where he, and a large part of the most senior non-combatants, including many senators, took a ship back to Constantinople. It is at this point that Michael Sellis' account of events is more comprehensive than Italiati's, since not only was he resident in Constantinople at the time, but he also witnessed the palace coup that was about to happen. He says that within a few days of the battle, news of the defeat was brought by the first survivors. Then... More survivors arrived, but they all had different versions of the battle. Some thought Romanus was dead, others that he'd been taken prisoner. So the Senate gathered and wondered what to do in this situation. Most people assumed that Romanus wouldn't return. Power was still in the hands of the Empress Eudocia, but Sellus describes the growing tension between her and the senators as to whether she should rule alone or jointly with her son, Michael. Sellus is at pains to paint a picture of Michael as being the epitome of modesty and respect for his mother, but the truth is that Sellus's description is carefully contrived propaganda, in my view, and uh, as will be discussed more fully in a later episode, to conceal the brutal palace coup that the Ducai were planning. To achieve this, Caesar John Ducas, previously exiled to his estates in Bithynia by Romanus, rushed back to Constantinople. The most crucial moment came when news that Romanus was still alive reached the capital. According to Celus, Eudocia received a letter from Romanus himself uh, quote, telling her of his adventures, end of quote. What could Eudocia do? The sources are confusing on this point. Both Cellus and Ataliates record that she was initially reluctant to support Romanus. This is very surprising coming from Ataliates, given that he said she still loved him when he left Constantinople for the Manzikert campaign. So how should we read this? The most plausible interpretation seems to be that she was concealing her support for Romanus, since she knew that Caesar John Ducas was poised to seize power. By showing reservations about Romanus, she hoped to appease Caesar John while she worked out a way to restore Romanus to the imperial throne. But the Ducai acted too fast and ruthlessly for her. It was exactly this kind of cutthroat Machiavellian politics that Caesar John excelled at. He immediately dispatched his two sons, Andronicus and Constantine, to bribe the Varangian guard, the main body of troops remaining in the city, to proclaim Michael emperor. Suitably paid off, the Varangians did just that. Quote, the the guards, the Varangians, banged on their shields all together, bawled their heads off as they shouted their war cry, Clashed sword on sword. End of quote. Seeing the bearded Vikings, uh, who were the Varangians, taking over the palace, Eudocia thought she would actually be killed. Open quotes, Eudocia did indeed lose her nerve and pulling her veil over her head, she ran off to a secret crypt below ground. End quote. The Varangians pursued her and dragged her away to be exiled to a convent. Sellus says that the new Emperor Michael VII, Ducas, refused to ratify his mother's cruel treatment, and maybe that was true, but it made no difference, since Caesar John, Ducas, and his two sons were now back in control. The traitors of Mansicurd had won. Meanwhile, back with Romanus, he learned of this palace coup when he reached the central Anatolian city of Amasia, He immediately occupied a nearby fortress called Docea and made this his headquarters as he pondered what to do next. The army he had with him was only a small force, certainly incapable of taking Constantinople. He was also almost certainly still suffering from his wounds inflicted at Mansikert. While Romanus prevaricated, Caesar John Ducas dispatched his son Constantine against him with what soldiers he could put together. These were principally the troops who had deserted from Mancicurt under Andronicus and Trachaniotes, But importantly, they didn't include the Western army, commanded by Briennius at Mancicurt, since it refused to join the Ducai against Romanus, who had been their former commander. Quote, the soldiers of the West for their part, had denounced the breaking of faith with him, i.e. Romanus, for they had been secured with oaths in advance, never to consent to any acts done against him. End of quote. As such, the Ducas army must actually have been quite small, consisting probably of some Varangians, Pechenegs and Levies from the Ducas estates. Romanus's forces were actually a match for these, as, at least initially, they consisted of the majority of the Franks and the Normans, who all went over to his side. In a number of skirmishes, Romanus's troops got the better of the Dukai, but then two things happened which changed everything. The first was the appearance in Constantine Dukas' army of a Norman knight called Crispin, who nursed a particular grudge against Romanus. This was because, and you may remember this in an earlier episode, he was the same man who had rebelled against Romanus in 1069 and who Romanus had subsequently imprisoned at Abydos on the uh, Bosphorus. Caesar John, the master of opportunism, released him and persuaded him to join the Ducai with the job of winning over Romanus's Norman mercenaries. Then Romanus was very unlucky with timing. Just as Crispin arrived, he left for Cappadocia to try to recruit more soldiers. Leaving one of his most trusted commanders, Theodore Aliates, in command of the army, he had no reason to suppose that this would Create any problem. Aliates was one of his most loyal supporters, having commanded the right wing at Manticurt and was a Cappadocian himself. He was also an impressive soldier, according to Ataliates a man from a family distinguished in warfare and who was impressive to behold, as he was exceptional in size and height and had shown his mettle in many campaigns. But Crispin was to prove more than his match. The Ducas army advanced towards Aliates' camp at Docea, prompting Aliates to launch an attack. In the battle that followed, Aliates underestimated Crispin's influence over his own Norman mercenaries who deserted to join Crispin because he was, quote, speaking to the Franks in their own language. Close quote. The result was a rout. The Norman cavalry charge shattered the Cappadocian battle line. The Cappadocians fled the field. Aliates himself was captured, and then his eyes were gouged out with tent pegs in the brutal blinding so beloved of the Byzantines. This defeat had a profound effect on Romanus. Aliates was a close friend, and his blinding seems to have particularly disheartened him. Quote, when he learnt of this, Diogenes felt a deep sorrow. He retreated with the remaining Cappadocian soldiers to a hilltop fort in Cappadocia called Tyropoios for the first time in his long and difficult reign. Romanus appears to have lost heart. It must be remembered that he was still suffering from his wounds sustained at Mansicurt and was almost certainly incapable of holding a sword, let alone fighting in battle. Up until the Battle of Mancicurt, Romanus had always led from the front and enjoyed being in the thick of battle. After Mancicurt, he was a shadow of his former self. Ataliates claims that he missed a huge opportunity to strike back at the Dukai when Constantine Dukas' army retired back to Constantinople, leaving Anatolia open to Romanus to reclaim. But instead of doing this, he retreated east towards Antioch to join forces with the governor of Antioch. This man was an Armenian noble called Chataturios, who Romanus had previously appointed to this position. He was a staunch supporter of Romanus, and he had previously refused to comply with the duke's instructions to march against Romanus and instead put at his disposal what was in effect the last remnants of the regular Byzantine army in the east. This was the garrison of Antioch and the Byzantine forces along the Syrian border. These soldiers were probably mainly Armenians, some of whom might have fought at Mansikert. Romanus was also hoping for Turkish support, since Arslan had promised to send him Turkish troops from neighbouring Syria. But the problem was that Romanus was a broken man. He made a series of tactical mistakes, starting with his failure to intercept the army that the Ducai sent against him in the spring of 1072, as it made its way through the winding passes and cliff tops of the Cilician Mountains in southeastern Turkey. Commanded by Andronicus this time, the traitor of Mansikurd, Ataliati says that Romanus could easily have prevented this army crossing the Taurus Mountains since he held the mountain passes. But in May 1072, this army passed safely through the Taurus mountain chain and marched out into the plain beside the fort of Adana, where Romanus and Chattaturius were camped. Romanus again didn't take part in the ensuing battle in which Chattaturius was captured. Yet again, it was Crispin and the Normans who played the key part. They charged the Byzantine forces and smashed their battle line, forcing them into a headlong retreat. In the rout, Chattaturius was captured and humiliated by Andronicus's soldiers, who apparently stripped him of his clothes and brought him before Andronicus, quote, naked and wretched, both on account of his present condition and the harm that he was about to suffer, end quote. While Celes claims that Andronicus was magnanimous to his captive, we can assume that this was fiction, since Chattaturius thereafter disappears from history. Meanwhile, Romanus remained in the fort at Adana with what remained of his troops. Sellus says he was hoping for troops to arrive from the Sultan and was ultimately betrayed by his own men. However, Ataliates contradicts this with a more likely scene, quote, the two sides negotiated with each other and they agreed that Diogenes, i.e. That, that is Romanus, uh, would divest himself of his imperial claim along with his hair and that he would live out the rest of his life as a monk, end quote. Ataliates emphasizes the sadness of Romanus's supporters as they saw him surrender to the treacherous Andronicus, quote, At that moment many who witnessed this sight, i.e. his surrender, felt a horrible and irresistible fear combined with pity, for they were all men who had often campaigned with him, made up the company of his bodyguards, and had celebrated his reign as blessed. The hideous crime that was to happen next would haunt Byzantium for centuries afterwards. The truth is that Romanus would have been better advised to commit suicide, as his father had done when arrested for treason, rather than face the retribution that Andronicus was planning for him. Returning to Constantinople Andronicus humiliated him by putting him on a donkey with his hair cut and dressed in black as a monk. He paraded him through the Anatolian villages and towns in this wretched state. Ataliati says that he also poisoned him so that he became ill with severe stomach cramps. But worse was to come. Although Romanus had surrendered on condition that he became a monk and was guaranteed his safety, Caesar John Ducas wasn't prepared to take any chances. He decided that he should be blinded, the normal punishment which the Byzantines inflicted on traitors and political rivals. When Romanus heard this, he panicked. He made one last desperate plea to the bishops who had brokered his surrender to Andronicus. There were three of them, the bishops of Chalcedon, Heraclea and Colonea, Ataliates says they tried to stop Andronicus's men from seizing Romanus, but it was to no avail. He was led away, protesting and calling out for the bishops to save him. Andronicus's men then pinned him down while one of them drove a poker into his eyes as he screamed. Ataliates describes the horrific event. Quote, they put him in a small room and tied down his four limbs and many men held him down with shields on his chest and stomach. Then they used an iron pin to destroy his eyes in an extremely painful and cruel way, while he roared and bellowed like a bull, though no one took pity on him. When he arose, his eyes were drenched with blood, a pitiable and pathetic sight that made everyone who saw it cry uncontrollably." End quote. With his horrific injuries, he was mocked and carried backwards on a donkey to the Bosphorus to take a boat to a monastery he himself had founded on the island of Prote. Whether he got there or not is uncertain. Sellus says that he died shortly after arriving at the monastery, but Italiati suggests he died on the way there, saying that his brutal blinding left him, quote, like a rotting corpse, with his eyes gouged out, his head all swollen up and maggots visibly dripping off. A few days later he died in excruciating pain, End quote. Indeed, Italiates was so shocked that he called for divine revenge on the Dukai, quote, as for you, O Emperor, that is Michael VII Ducas, what was this order that you gave, one way or another, a day will come when an evil eye, titanic and cronian, will turn its gaze upon you and push your fortunes to the same evil fate. End quote. Ataliates' words would prove to be true, but not just for the Dukai, for the whole of Byzantium. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did and want to leave a review, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, I'll send a copy of my book, The Byzantine World War, to three winners who I'll choose randomly uh, from those posting reviews are, I'm sorry, just on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. And when you post uh, the review, if you could send an email to Byzantium and the Crusades at gmail.com with your address. Thank you so much. In the next episode, we'll move on to what happened in the reign of the Dukai and the utterly disastrous effect it had on Byzantium.